The whole book is ultimately a, a, a one big pointing sign to the suffering righteous son on the cross. The man who was God and who is righteous, who suffered death. And the people around him, the Romans, they thought it was because Israel wanted him out. And then they thought he was a, you know, a, uh, a foe, you know, a, a potential threat to the em- empire. Uh, the Israelites thought this guy's a quack. He's a blasphemer, and uh, he's disrupting order. We need to get this zealot out of here. So they want him dead because of his blasphemy, claiming to be God. The disciples were confused. They thought the kingdom was coming. They thought David's ancestor was coming to set up the kingdom. When Jesus dies on the cross, he's this righteous man. And what's happening? It was the will of the Lord to crush him. Welcome to the Fire and Bones podcast. I'm Michael Crosswhite, pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. And I am Nathan Loudon, the pastor of Millwood Baptist Church in Austin, Texas. Follow the podcast, rate it. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this week's episode. So, do you remember what we're doing? On this podcast? <laughs> like, like, <laughs> wait, this is a podcast? Yeah, it's been a while. We actually released this stuff? I haven't talked to you since like June. Yeah, yeah, it's been it's been forever. So we had like, so we were on like hiatus, right? We do it like the Hollywood people do it, right? We take little, yeah, yeah, just like Hollywood, <laughs> just the exact same, same. I mean, recording the- quality, uh, same studio operation, um, same money behind this project. I mean. I mean, yeah. the production quality is, it's negligible. The difference is not much. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you were, you were on, what, how many vacations was this for you this year? The 15th. <laughs> I, I took a solid, very solid three week vacation with my family, which I do not have no guilt for whatsoever. Uh, and, uh, so for that reason, we took a break from season yeah. three and. Here yeah, we are you, starting season four. You were gone. And I was like, I mean, you could just record. Off the radar. You could record yep. while you're out there in the wilderness hunting Bigfoot. Nope. Isn't that what you did? You went and hunt. Y'all went in Sasquatch. Bears. It was Sasquatch hunting. two bears. Right? No Sasquatch. Are you sure, you sure it wasn't Bigfoot? <laughs> I mean. I mean, is was, anyone sure? Was the quote unquote bear kind of pixelated and grainy? Because right. Bigfoot is pixelated. I don't know if you know that. He's blurry. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, just just bears and foxes and hawks and snakes and cabin in the woods. Saw friends. Got to saw, see Alex Sossler. Oh, saw him for a few days. Heard awesome. him preach in his robe. In his robe. Yeah. Awesome. So uh, you're back at it. We're we're. Uh, I never left. I mean, I'm just. I've just been here working. <laughs> 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 just like normal and uh so but you're back now back. for for yep. 
at least the next couple of weeks or so. Uh, <laughs> 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 um, uh, so you're starting what? What you're starting the book of Job? Starting the book of Job this Sunday, September the 11th, and I will be done, Lord willing, by Thanksgiving. Time out. Go Set back. Schedule. I knew. I knew it was coming. Go. <laughs> you're starting a 42 chapter book, mm-hmm. and you're going to be done with it. You're starting that. This coming week, we're recording mm-hmm. this on September 8th, yep. and you're starting this on September 11th. Correct. And you're going to finish this before Thanksgiving. Correct. So. And I'll have some guest preachers between now and then. <laughs> for your vacations? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I could answer that why, but no, we should be done. I have on my schedule November twentieth. Uh, so I, I think obviously we got to talk about how you. Yeah, I mean you you preach verse by verse. You've preached I at do my preach church verse by verse, and actually Job is going to be a little bit unique, and I think it's because the book is unique. So there is a level of precision in some of the arguments of Job that are wonderful and helpful. Some of them can be very precise. So there are a few chapters that I won't address individually, one by one, verse by verse. I will address thematically, and uh, usually taking chunks of Scripture at a time. So, for example, in Job, you have these long sections of conversations between Job and his friends, well, you can't just preach Job's answer. You can't just preach Job's friends' questions. You have to preach that as a unit, as an answer and response, and sometimes a response after. So, you know, we've got—I'm looking at my notes. Most weeks uh, have uh, one whole chapter or sometimes three to four chapters at a time, and then sometimes referencing other chapters within another sermon to kind of include a whole a whole span. So— it's a, you know, if if there's ground level outer space, this is going to be 30,000 feet. Okay. So I want to back up just a minute and just think about Job as a, as like a whole. Yeah. And talk to me, like tell talk to us about the the flow of the book as a whole. Like how yeah. how do you even approach a book like this? First of all, it's really long, right? Yep. Some some sections there's there's some um, there's some bits at the beginning and at the end that are relatively straightforward and easy to understand I think but are certainly especially at the beginning a little bit strange mm-hmm. yeah you have Satan coming in and things like that to the the counsel of God and so then um, but then the the rest of the book there there's some repetitive stuff that kind of goes throughout it and things like that so. Talk to me just about how the the book, in your estimation, how it flows first. Yeah. So first of all, there are a lot of things that seem repetitive, but they're actually close to each other and so precise they're hard to tell apart. Sometimes there can just be one verse between two chapters that really make a difference in what two different friends are saying about Job. Um, So I'll answer kind of the, the flow of the book from the beginning to the end. 
and then kind of where it fits in biblical theology in yeah. the Old Testament history. So I'm going to preach Job very much like uh, a narrative, really. It's its genre is wisdom literature, so it's meant to be uh, philosophical. It's meant to be contemplative. It has truths that it proclaims, and and yet it flows from an opening scene where we see God in heaven relating and speaking to Satan, kind of behind the veil of reality that we know. You see, Job lose everything that he has. He worships God anyway. Uh, he loses his own health, and then he goes into mourning. His wife tempts him, encourages him to curse God uh, because he's lost all of these things, and she doesn't think that he deserved it. Job refuses to curse God. And so those first three chapters really are the scene setting for the rest of the book. Now, we usually only know Job as the first three chapters. Job loses everything, he worships God, then he mourns in chapter 3. And that's what we know about Job. He suffered the loss of personal and material things and was faithful. But that's actually not the point of Job. It is. But it's the scene set for the rest of Job. Yeah. The rest of Job is really why the book was written. That first three chapters is actually written so that we can relate and God's people can relate every loss they've ever had that they don't understand to Job. Yeah. When Job's friends, they come in chapter 4 to grieve with him, mourn with him, their comfort quickly turns to inquisition. Uh, you must have done something wrong. You must have sin in your heart that you're not telling someone. You deserve worse than this, so don't hide your little sin that gets this. You actually deserve worse. Uh, Job, you should be very afraid. God's going to do more bad things if you don't confess your sin. These kinds of accusations come all the way from four, chapter 4 through 28. That's actually the m- main part of the book. And it's operating almost like a court case, like they are accusing Job of lying, that he does deserve this, he did do something wrong, and that's why this is happening. Neither Job nor his wife nor his friends have any idea about the cosmic scene that was set in the very first half of the very first three chapters when God gives permission to Satan to take those things away. So there's a scene setting in chapters one through three when Job loses everything and worships God. And then there is conflict rising, or that what we would call rising action in a plot arc, as the debate intensifies from chapters four through twenty-eight, that Job is at fault and he refuses to confess it. He refuses they are they get, they get mad at him. They get furious at him, and they even begin to mock him. So you can see they go from, hey, Job, let's think about this. We all know that you probably have sin. And by the end, they can't even talk to each other anymore. Hmm. And it's and that takes us into chapter 31, where we see Job's final words. And then we see chapter 38, verse 1. God speaks. The God who was in chapters 1 through 3, only up in heaven, we have no idea what he's doing. No idea. Job doesn't know what he's doing on earth. No one knows what God is. He has an, an arrangement of some kind with Satan. Well, in chapter 38, the climax breaks when God comes and speaks into the conflict of Job and his friends. And from there, the falling action comes where there's knowledge of, of who God is, reminder of who God is, um, there is the 
uh, judgment on Job's friends and the restoration of Job's blessing. Even Actually, it's not even a restoration. It's an incredible multiplication of everything that Job, a perfect multiplication, you might say, of everything that Job uh, had lost. So I'm actually going to preach and teach and introduce the book almost as a story of a man who loses everything and then gets into a philosophical debate with his friends about morality and order and chaos and evil and righteousness and injustice on God's part for letting him suffer. Those questions are in the form of a story. Uh, a play. This is kind of a, a three-act play. The first setting, the argument before the friends, and then God's response. Um, and it's all teaching us about how man thinks about suffering and how man thinks about what we deserve and don't deserve. So the subtitle that I've given for the book of of Job is the sovereignty of God over chaos and evil. The point being that uh, when Job is losing everything, it looks like the world is chaos. If Job is innocent and he's suffering, then the world must be in chaos because what usually happens in the world is good people get good things and bad people get bad things from God. So Job's upsetting the cosmic order uh, is the accusation, if that's what he wants to maintain, that he didn't do anything to deserve this. And also just the suffering of evil. Uh, that's the word used in chapters 1 through 3 that Job suffers. His friends recognize that he's experiencing uh, evil. So the book is really about that. Um, the other thing I would say about the book, just kind of as an introduction, is how it fits into uh, Old Testament revelation. And that's that the relationship that God's people have with God uh, from Abraham forward is covenant. <clears throat> and as long as God's people keep his covenant and walk in obedience to him, uh, then it will go well with them. You see this in Deuteronomy forward, and this is why they end up getting spit out of the land in, uh, in, in Kings. Um, so Job is helping answer a question to to people who have these rigid covenant terms which define their theology about what God can do and will do in the world. That God is kind of, he, God is himself bound to our obedience and disobedience. So that if we obey, then God owes us something. And if we disobey, God owes us something. Job is kind of breaking that open. And saying, because what happens when Job's friends come, they're often speaking in terms that sound like covenant terms. It's not always explicitly, but it sounds like, hey, A, you sinned, so A, or when you're B, you're going to be judged. That's the way the world works, Job. And that's the way every Israelite would have thought in covenant. Well, and uh, you just, God. just if I could pause you for just a second, yeah, you just finished preaching Proverbs. Which, that is, seems to be the way Proverbs is arranged. That here is, th this is good, if you, and this is bad. If you do bad, you're going to be punished, or you're going to end up in poverty. And if yeah, you do I would, good... I would, I, would, I, would, I, would not, I would not argue that. I would say, here's what the book of Proverbs is doing. Proverbs has the law, and I'm going to give you an example from chapter 5, my last sermon. Uh, the law says, do not commit sexual immorality, or adultery, and if you do, you should be put to death. That doesn't change in Proverbs. 
what changes in Proverbs is the wisdom about keeping the law. So that you have in chapter 5 the wisdom that goes to that command in the law, the wisdom from the father to the son is, son, don't even go down that road. Son, don't even go down the road to her house. Son, don't even look that direction. Son, go home to your wife. Keeping the law, son, is not just about technicality. You have to be wise. You have to look out. Her lips drip with honey. Her speech is so sweet. So when it comes to keeping the law, you need wisdom, and you need to have understanding in the world. It's about understanding what's going on in the world. Uh, there's a command, but there's also wisdom about keeping that command. So it's an it's a it's help in understanding God and the law. That's how I would understand Proverbs largely. That's that's certainly true of the first the first nine chapters, but it gives the basis for the last number of chapters where a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty sneaks up on you like a robber. Yeah, surprise, and, surprise! If you don't plant crops in the spring, you don't eat anything in the summer. Right. So Proverbs still has the, I mean, why it's proverbial. It's got a, you know, a a statement of truth to it that leaves no room for um, equivocation. And so you end up with these statements in Proverbs that are matter of fact, black, white, uh, yes, no, and in the, I, I grant you in the first like nine chapters, there is Solomon's warning to his children and to say, uh, you, you do have to apply wisdom and, and you're going to be tempted to go to the un, unwise route. But in the rest of Proverbs, it is a very, it's a very black and white line. Yeah, Whereas the goal, I think from the it seems like Job to, is not that way is what you're kind of saying. Yeah, I think from the beginning, it's to get understanding. I mean, this is what all of wisdom literature is. Mm-hmm. as a genre, to get understanding. Sure. Ecclesiastes right. is taking what matters in the world. Well, everything is vanity. I've had swimming pools. I've had women. I've had you know, houses, and it's all vanity. At the very end of Ecclesiastes, you know, when all has been said and done and all has been heard, the only thing that matters is keeping the commands of God. And I think it's the same in, in Proverbs. Uh, you know, what is wisdom? Wisdom is fearing the Lord. Um, that's the, actually the same phrase in Ecclesiastes. Wisdom is fearing the Lord. When Job talks about wisdom in Job 28, that's his answer as well. What is wisdom? Where can you find it? It's in fearing the Lord, that phrase. So uh, to put them in their kind of genre context, Ecclesiastes is saying, you know, everything else is vain. The only thing that matters is fearing God and keeping His commandments. What else can you control, right? Uh, you're going to lose everything when you die. Proverbs is saying there are the commands, and you have to have understanding about the world out in front of you. You, you need to think about the way the world works, son, so that you can understand the world and not be dumb, not be stupid, to use a pro- the proverbial terms. Don't be unknowing everywhere you go. Be aware of what the world is actually like. I think Job is saying when you are suffering and you lose everything, how do you, what's your theology then? What does the fear of the Lord and keeping his commands look like in that moment? Because you're going to be tempted, you know, in, in, you're going to be tempted in in a way to say, well, this God is unjust. You're going to start making accusations against God, and you're going to have people who don't understand 
you won't even understand what God's doing in your life or in someone else's life or with your life might be a, a better way to put it. Um, and so Job is trying to open up and say, you also have to think about God like this. It's not just obedience reward in terms of your own righteousness. Sometimes you might be doing the right thing and you're still going to be suffering for purposes you don't even know and you may never know. Hmm. Um, so I don't know if that's, that helps, but that's kind of how I've been thinking about the genre or you know those three books in the genre, not including Psalms. Yeah, I think it is. Now I want to, so I want to ask. Like you, you just kind of laid out not only, not only Job, but also Ecclesiastes and Proverbs. You've preached both Ecclesiastes and at least part of Proverbs yeah. um, around your vacation schedule, and so and then now you're. <laughs> that's, a, that's okay. <laughs> I'm gonna continue. I, to take... I don't. I think I feel like I've missed this a little bit. I, mean, I think even that part I've missed. <laughs> this is the reason you need a break every year. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it wasn't. It wasn't a vacation, and sorry, I couldn't do the podcast. It was actually a vacation from the podcast. <laughs> Let's just make that clear, okay? <laughs> uh, so I know that as people have listened and talked to me about it, people that I know they have said because uh, I tease everybody. And yeah. I'm an equal opportunity teaser, and like it's at least it's encouraging that you tease Nathan too. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, all right, uh, you just laid out Ecclesiastes, um, Proverbs, and Job, and yeah. obviously we're most concerned with Job right now. But I think as you're as just the average person picks up the Book of Job and begins to read it. It's 42, I believe, 42 chapters long. Um, and e- even though there are subtle nuances between what the friends are saying in the middle, mm-hmm. after about chapter two or three, you start to get a little bit uh, slowly drowned in sort of what can feel like monotony. Absolutely. Uh, I, right? There's, there's, mm-hmm. there's more than one person that is told me before oh, yeah. in Sounds reading like the book the of Job. same thing for 20 yeah. chapters. Yeah. In, in, in similar to, you know, you get to the end of the book of Exodus and you get the the scarlet and purple threads and fine twine linen and you get that mm-hmm. repeated over and over and you get these repetitions of same mm-hmm. things and it seems kind of that way in, in Job. So I think one question that I have is just when you're taking in the whole book of 42 chapters of Job, how do you get to the point where you're seeing not only just the structure of it, but also the the little nuances in the middle of it. How do you how do you you know how are you able to hold all that together and then sort of parse out the little finer bits in the middle? Yeah, I think this would be encouraging, not discouraging, to someone who comes in. They should be encouraged by this. But on the way in this morning, I was thinking. I have a really busy week with a, a, a wedding this week and finance meeting this afternoon and all just different things happening and, you know, getting an AC at the church and uh, i got to fit this podcast in somewhere. And I think... You can take a vacation was, from it if you want. <laughs> I was thinking, this, this is a sermon that I'm trying to write this week, but I've also been writing this for a couple of years hmm. that... I, I, I'm not looking at Job going, well, I just, I picked it up and read it last week, and it just, it just kind of came to me mm-hmm. that 
it it is thicker it does require more attention but the, i would say pay attention you know pay careful attention when you look at the beginning of the book and the end you can see very clearly there's some bookends on of blessing of loss and restoration and what that would mean for the people of Israel i ultimately think that the end of job is a, a picture of multiplication of blessing in heaven uh, is what it ultimately points to, not Job's stuff here on earth, but that's maybe another another conversation. The arguments that are made between Job and his friends between chapters 4 and chapters 28 are some of the, the purpose of the book. And so slow down and realize those are not just kind of in there because they have to be. They're not in there just because... Uh, someone, someone loves philosophy and wanted to, you know, give their best shot. There are some really rich, funny, sarcastic, surprising, uh, poetic narratives in the conversations. And so I would just get in there and re- listen really closely and just know from the beginning. And really, this is any book of the Bible. Job's not much different. But if you just sit down and think, I'll just do Job in my, my devotion, and I'll just kind of pick it up and read it and kind of grasp it, you'll, you'll probably be discouraged, and you'll, you'll be confused. But if at the, the beginning you go, this is going to be a study. This is going to be something I'm going to think about for weeks and, and months. That's what it's meant to do. It, it's meant for that. There, there's no other way to, to get it. It's like a gallon of water. You, you, you're going to have to drink multiple drinks to, to get it all in. So just just knowing that, that there is, and wisdom literature has this nature to it anyway, along with all of Scripture, the, the meditative aspect of reading it, reading it again, reading it again, being very careful to be precise with what is he actually saying in this chapter, sounds very similar. Well, it's not the same thing. So, so what is, what's different in this chapter? Uh, so and so, pay close attention and ask that, and and I think you'll just be really surprised that you go, oh, this, this is what he's saying. That's that's different than that. And I've actually been in a conversation where I have heard that exact thing, that's unique to this chapter and this argument. Uh, and I think you'll be deeply encouraged by that. So there's this scene at the very beginning of Job where, um, and it's for the first uh, two chapters or so, where. Satan basically comes into, it says in verse six, now there was a day when the sun, this is chapter one, when there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them. And I think I would probably speak on behalf of most people when they say, what is Satan doing there? And what is this that we're even looking at here at the beginning of Job? Yeah. There's a couple different viewpoints on that. Uh, some people are really hyper excited about the kind of council of the gods. Uh, and God has this meeting place. He's got angelic representatives there. Satan can come meet him there. It's kind of like, you know, the, the, the throne room or maybe like a foyer in the, in the king's kingdom where he meets and engages with, uh, you know, the, the prime minister from other nations. And that's where they, you know, the... The, the two nations come and meet and counsel together and you know and so I, I you could find that same idea in Psalms and I want to say Ezekiel um, I, I'm not con- 
convinced that's the main point of the book or the first three chapters that to tell us there is some established official uh, council that maybe it popped up in Genesis six and maybe it's popped up in the Psalms and it you know kind of exists like that because it's it doesn't seem to be the emphasis of the narrative the the structure there and it and it's not common to the rest of Scripture. I think that's another problem for us. It's not like it's building on and built on that kind of Satan and God are always kind of having conversations and they're in a little yin and yang, you know, debate over, you know, what's going on on earth. The The point is that the point is more theological in poetic form that there is an invisible reality behind what happens in our lives. And Satan is a part of that. And God is a part of that, obviously. Um, and that good and evil is not just, and this is a big question through the uh, conversation with the friends and Job, is good and evil kind of this abstract happening that depends on what we do all the time? Job's friends would say yes. And the point in the scene setting in chapter 1 is that no, actually, there is an invisible spiritual reality that is actually the moving, shaping, overarching driver of history, and that there's a sovereign, deciding, allowing God behind the reality that we see that's actually interacting with this reality. And I think that I think that's the main point. If we want to invite someone on the podcast one day to give us a big spiel about the Council of the Gods and what it is and who's there, I say, let them have at it. I don't think that's the main point in Job 1 or 2. Mm. So I guess what you mean is like, this is not designed to give us the bylaws of the courtroom of heaven. And this is how it uh, operates yeah. and things like that. Right. But or designed like to kind of vision. Yeah. But designed to kind of give a background and a depth, maybe. Is it fair to say a depth to evil and suffering in the world? That it that there's a a depth to it that is even beyond just mere human action. Yeah, it's there's... the genre that is taking in, instead of writing a a thesis paper that's sixty pages long, they tell a three chapter story about God talking to Satan to kind of uh, personify the theology that they're trying to show. And I say personify; they're not trying to personify something that's not a person. It's actually there's actually Satan, I think, who's actually being allowed to do something, and there's actual God who's there. But the form of poetry and narrative in this genre is, you know, teaching through playwright and through play act what's actually happening so that we're like children. We can just we can watch it like a story and and hear that this is the scene set. So that every time the whole point is so that every time we listen to every argument in chapter four through twenty eight between the friends, we're supposed to constantly go, Yeah, but God allowed this to happen. And well and, and by there's a friends, no more troubling part of this that it's not just that God allowed it to happen. He actually asks Satan, Do you have you considered my servant Job? There in verse 8 of chapter 1, he says, (laughs) The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? And Satan's like, Well, now that you mention it, does, you know, Job fear God for no? And and so it's, it's, 
I don't know. The only way to describe that is it seems a little bit worse to people that are reading it than simply God allowed it. He brought Job's name into the conversation when it, yeah, it wasn't I think there. That's kind of a that's such a fine haired theological argument that there's not an argument there. If God is strong enough and sovereign enough to stop it, and He, you know, if He has said to allow it rather than cause it, uh, you know. Um, I know that there's much written on the difference between allowing and causing, um, but I, I, it's at, at that point you're you're saying the same thing. Um, uh, so, so you're saying the distinction? There's no distinction Job. really between allowing and causing. If he's omnipotent and all powerful, and whether he allows it or causes it, the two are essentially synonymous. Is that what you mean? No, not in not not to every degree and in every manner, but in the theo- in the theological answer of is God sovereign over this? So to answer that specific question, then the answer is yes. Mm. You know, God God doesn't uh, himself go down and scrape Job's arms and give him boils. Right. He Satan does that. Right. So you know, where was God? He's allowing this, you know. Yeah. Because uh, and, and I think it really just feeds into the question that everyone has when when we have a belief that there is a God, and we have some semblance of Him being God, so He can do things. And then when bad things happen, we ask God, "Why did you allow this? Why mm-hmm. are you doing this?" Well, it's Satan. Yeah, yeah, I know God, but you're God, so why are you? Mm-hmm letting this happen or why did you do this it's the same question it's the same mm. what's wrong with god that yeah. he didn't do something different yeah well I, i'm do you think that that gives um more texture at least to the concept of our own suffering the suffering of the believer suffering of the redeemed person um I, I, that I mean, that it's not just like it's not just it's not just that Satan is an evil instigator, and sometimes Satan does what Satan does, but that there's that there's more a lot more texture to this. That in the instance that that God is actually bringing Job's name up in the conversation, yeah, so you're saying there could, there could be a sense in which you could say, well, God means good, but Satan's the one running around causing trouble, and you know God would never God would never do this. You know, this is this is Satan's fault. And I think it's the exact opposite point Job's trying to make uh, from the very beginning, that God's responsible for all the world. There, There is not a plan that he has. There is not a thought he has. There is not a square inch of the universe or existence in any realm that God is not sovereign over. So, yeah, if someone were to say, well, God allowing it makes it sound like, you know, he couldn't stop it or, you know, he didn't. Uh, somehow intended from his sovereignty, uh, that's a problem. Yeah, it seems like sometimes maybe, and maybe this is not everybody, but I think our natural reaction in a lot of cases is to remove God from the equation and go, hey, 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 let's get God's name out of this. And let's instead think about what all events precipitated this very act. Mm-hmm. And it seems like Job will not let you do that. Now, we may be making too much 
of God bringing Job's name up, but it seems like the author of Job is not a moron, you know, like he, 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 (laughs) right. I mean, for sure. And so it's, it would be easy to write that a different way and to not leave any kind of implications of God or to do what we often do, get God out of the equation and say, look, Hey, Satan's in this, you know, Satan's doing this. And he doesn't, he seems to intentionally leave that statement exactly the way it's stated and the and, and to feel the way it feels when you read that. And we're not the first human beings to read this in Job and go, Whoa, wait a second. What is God doing here? You know? Mm-hmm. And, and so how, how do we, how, how does the believer then, in light of that, process affliction that happens to them, right? How do we process our own suffering mm-hmm. in light of something like that? Yeah, again, I would say, just to answer kind of the chapter one and two question really quickly of, of allowing and causing, that... Um, the genre puts us in a place where we are reading it differently. And there is, uh, to use a word I've borrowed from a book, some elasticity to the interpretation and application when you're in poetic genre. It doesn't read like Romans. Right, yeah. Which is precise in its... It's like a legal document versus a, a, a poem, right? It's not that the poem isn't telling you truth or that the play and the story isn't telling you truth, like a narrative you're preaching through First Samuel right now, like that. Um, but that you have to be careful that you don't take it to a – stretch it to a precision that it doesn't mean to go. Um, but to answer your question, how do Christians think about that? I, I think you know what, what Job is teaching the Old Testament Israelite is that – one, you don't know what God is doing. The friends don't know. Job doesn't know. The only thing Job ever knows is what God says at the end of the book and to, to Job. And also, um, there is very often in our lives an immediate correlation, both in the proverbial logical kind of sense that I do something wrong and something bad happens to me, you know, I don't use my left blinker because I'm in a hurry and I don't care. And then I hit a car and I get in a car accident and my premiums go up. Well, that's Proverbs telling you, use your blinker. Don't be a fool. Uh, you'll find places in the New Testament, you preached on this recently, I think, where you, you sin and things happen. People die because they took the Lord's Supper or they got sick because they took the Lord's Supper in, in vain. You know, get Ananias and Sapphira who die because of their sin. You know, all of Israel is punished because of their sin and taken into exile, disciplined, you could say. Um, but there's a category for uh, the Christian and for or for those in the Old Testament covenant to recognize that God does whatever he wants whenever he wants to. And, and if God wants to allow something because God sees some good in it that he will never tell you, then God can do that. God doesn't need to come and ask your permission. God doesn't need to, you know— you know, weigh your righteousness to determine if somehow, uh, you know, you, you line up for a good lashing or not, or something like that. Um, th- that 
Job is trying to destroy that category in, in our minds. Uh, in fact, if you you could say the opposite, if you if you had some textual in Job, you had some textual, um, uh, you know, logical connection between Job's suffering and his righteousness. It would be that he was righteous, and so therefore he suffered. God is the one who noticed him, and it's ultimately pointing us. The whole book is ultimately this is one of my points this week. The whole book is ultimately uh, a, a one big pointing sign to the suffering righteous son on the cross. The man who was God and who is righteous, who suffered death. And the people around him, the Romans, they thought it was because Israel wanted him out. And then they thought he was a, you know, a... Uh, a foe, you know, a, a potential threat to the em- empire. Uh, the Israelites thought this guy's a quack. He's a blasphemer, and uh, he's disrupting order. We need to get this zealot out of here. So they want him dead because of his blasphemy, claiming to be God. The disciples were confused. They thought the kingdom was coming. They thought David's ancestor was coming to set up the kingdom. When Jesus dies on the cross, he's this righteous man. And what's happening? It was the will of the Lord to crush him. The one who knew no sin, that he might become sin. So there is in Job a setting up of the righteous one who would suffer the unrighteous suffering and punishment for us, for all mankind. Uh, it, it's a it's a foreshadowing and a, and a picture of, of the distortion of justice. I don't know if I would say that term. Uh, but the distortion of earthly justice and that the unrighteous man is dying so that God's justice will be uh, fulfilled. And that he dies for us as propitiation for our sins so that God can be, as Paul says in Romans 5, God is both just and the justifier. He's just in that he punishes sin like he ought to because of his holiness but he also justifies us because Jesus died for us in our place. So the whole, the whole playing on who deserves what and what's God doing up in heaven, uh, it really is just a, a little light pointing to the, it, it's a, how I'm going to say it this Sunday, it's kind of like the moon reflecting the light of the glory of the suffering sun on the cross, which is the sun to us. It makes me think of a couple of different things in Scripture. One is, um, you know, just this broadening out of the very concept of justice. Um, it makes me think of of uh, God saying, your ways are not my ways, and your thoughts are not my thoughts, uh, yeah. and they are drastically far apart. Um we're not talking a minuscule difference. We're talking oceans of difference yeah. between that's a, the that's depth. That's a problem. That's Do not what? a good thing in Isaiah 55. Right. That's a problem. Right, right. Yeah. And you have this very myopic understanding of justice, and there's yeah. something bigger being accomplished that you could never possibly fathom. Yeah. And and so it makes me think of that, like that we're get, we're being given intentionally, I think, in Job, um, this kind of peek behind the curtain, so as to say, this whole book is going to 
fail your expectations if you have a human understanding of of justice and evil and all of that. And then the the other thing it makes me think of is in Genesis 50. Let me well let me speak to that really quick because it's not necessarily blowing up justice. It's not saying that there's no such thing as justice. What it ultimately does because I think as you said that's helpful to me. Because it's not saying, hey, you just need to blow up all terms of justice and Mm-mm. who deserves what and good and evil and punishment and those things because they're actually intact. Yeah. But it it, le- it, it takes it out off the earth and puts it up in God. Yeah. And I'm so saying what I'm saying it's, it's, so, it yeah. takes your understanding of right. justice yeah, yeah. and helps put it in its place. Right. Your understanding of justice, your concept of how the world works is myopic. Right. right. And you couldn't possibly fathom the depth of what's being accomplished in God and justice that God is actually on the march for. Yeah. The other thing that it makes me think of is in Genesis 50 where Joseph is um, now uh, what, what you might call vice regent over, um, over all of Egypt, the most powerful land in the world who actually has fruit and plenty when Canaan is in uh, the midst of famine which basically Canaan is experiencing the effects of the fall and Egypt seems to be uh, immune from prosecution, as it were. Uh, and Joseph is sort of like that kind of Adam figure almost. And mm-hmm. um, and he's providing for his family. They come to bow down for him, before him when they realize what who he is and mm-hmm. remember what they've done to him. Mm-hmm. And he says to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but mm-hmm. God meant it for good, to bring yeah. it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So the the reason I think that verse is so profound is not that he says, um, you meant it for evil, but God turned that for good. Mm-hmm. He actually exposes two competing intentions in the narrative that you selling me into slavery was an intention you had in your heart to sell me into slavery and the intention was evil and you sinned in doing so. But God's God had an intention also in selling me into slavery, mainly that it, that it reveals that in this whole scheme, God actually intended for Joseph to go into slavery and into Egypt. Mm-hmm. And that's what he wanted to happen. But his intention for it was good. And it seems like, is it fair to say, I guess I should ask the question, is it fair to say that that explanation is a way, a lens, to look at the book of Job? That here we have, especially in these first few chapters, Satan's intentions for Job is to curse God and die, essentially. Mm-hmm. And but God's intentions for Job is good in the end. Is it fair to look at it that way? I think it's you're you're gonna find kinship in the theological conclusions in Joseph's saga and in Job. Uh that there's a God doing things that you can't see and know. And he's actually you know, you, you use the phrase com- competing wills, and I think you know what you mean. There's there's two wills in one action, and God was supersedingly intending His will through evil will, um, through evil intent of man. I think it's 
so yeah, I, th- I think it's there. I think it's in that vein of theological education for the people of Israel. You know, when are they getting when are they getting in their hands the story of Joseph? Well, they're getting that from from Moses on the other side of the Red Sea, where they're learning about their God and how they got to where they are. And Job, I I think does that, and I think also for you know dating Job is hard, but we know it's really old, and probably Abraham's time, something like that. There, there's a lot of language and forms and uh, similar accounts that date way back before Moses when it comes to, to Job. But for but Job for God's people is also, I was thinking about this as we we're talking, like you've got Israel, and they're a constant competition of gods. You Coming out of Egypt, it's, you know, it was our God versus Pharaoh and his gods. And all the plagues, they, they weren't just random, you know, God's sense of humor ways to get mad at Pharaoh. Those were shots at all of their gods uh, that God was taking head on. When they come out, what do they find? I mean, you're in First Samuel. They find Dagon. This is a competition between gods, uh, nations uh, in, in the land. And this is one, you know, Job is getting God out of kind of this God versus God kind of earthly competition and seeing God up in heaven in relation to evil itself and to Satan himself. God is not one of those gods running around having competition on the battlefield. God is so high in heaven and so sovereign over chaos and evil that there is nothing higher. He's not just down here on earth and in our doings. He's up in heaven with his intention. I think like Joseph, I think it's fair comparison. The other thing that's interesting about the book that I think is helpful and be really interesting for uh, people to meditate on is uh, some of God's comments at the end of Job. Some of God's uh, last comments coming back in, um, if I'm out of place here, uh, 39, 40, Are you going to talk about dinosaurs? Are you going to talk about dinosaurs? Oh, gosh. Are you going to talk about dinosaurs? Do it. You know, do it. Do it. Do it. <laughs> Tell me about dinosaurs. You have to have one sermon I, I on have, just dinosaurs. I've been looking for dinosaur books that are actually helpful, actually. I don't know which one to trust. I'm not kidding. I've been looking for it on Amazon. I don't know which one is the, the best. Yeah. So I've thought about ordering a couple competing ones. Um, But the very end, I mean, just you have to think about this, okay? God's last words in the book of Job are about his uh, his strength over the behemoth and the leviathan, which would seem to be a beast of earth and a beast of the sea. Uh, the sea through Job. The dinosaur of the earth and the dinosaur is, of the sea. Is referenced Sorry, as, just correct it for the record. Go ahead. The, the sea is deep, dark, uncontrollable, unknown. I mean, we've, we you know... Modern man has gone miles down below the surface, I think, of the sea. The sea in, in ancient times was chaos and evil and uncontrollable, unpredictable. We don't know what's down there. We know there's beasts that turn the water. And, uh, and God ends the, his last words in the book of Job are about his power over the beast, the behemoth and the leviathan. You have to admit it's strange. Forgot yeah, it's say. really cool though when he talks about like <laughs> putting a le- a leash on its uh, on him and walking him around for his daughters. <laughs> oh, I'd love that verse. I, mean, I that, love that so much, loud, dude. 
it, yes. it also kind of like it's just gives so... a little it, this these are the things i love about the bible that are not i would never preach these points or anything like they're not like preaching points but they're little glimpses into into history that like dads have always wanted to dote on their daughters you know like you just get that little window and just when he says that it's like a timeless truth that you that like you're meant to when you read it go oh yeah i know what he's talking about right like it's an analogy and and that analogy just gives a window into dads have always been like this with their daughters you know and mothers have always been like that with their sons you know you see that a time or two in the scriptures too i think i love those little yeah, for, for me, it was full-throated permission to be sarcastic in, in godly moments. Um, but <laughs> Yeah, so, so Job, Job 41, verse 5, Will you play with him, the Leviathan, who he, he catches with a fish hook? Will you play with him like a bird, or will you put him on a leash for your girls? So the, the picture there is this great, big, huge, you know, infamous, scary beast can you tame him and send him out to the backyard and play with your girls? No, you would never do that with an alligator. You wouldn't do that with, you know, a bear. Um, but God does that with his his girls, apparently. So, <laughs> but why 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 these animals? So, um, Eric Ortland, uh, the the Ortland's son, uh, did a book on Job, and I I I really found it compelling the argument that. Ancient, ancient literature had the behemoth and the leviathan, respectively, in different cultures, representing chaos and evil. Their depictions of chaos and evil. Their depictions of what man fears. Their depictions of the unknown beast in the sea. And if you can conquer a beast, you can be king. You can rule because no one can do that. And so for God to end the argument with Job by saying, I, I play with the behemoth and Leviathan like a dog doing tricks. It's so condescending to earthly power and earthly thoughts. And, and it is, it's even more prof And it makes sense that God is giving Israel a message in their context about the sovereignty of God. And in a... In a, in a poetic form that is going to go boxing with ancient Near East other poetic forms, if that makes sense. This, yeah. is a, this is a book and a poem that's you know published on Amazon in a whole philosophical swirl of books that are written on uh, good and bad and suffering. And God says, chaos and evil, I play with them. I, I bind them up and bring them home and I stuff them and I put them on the wall over my mantle at my fireplace. It's not even a question how sovereign and how in control I am of everything. Otherwise, you're left with God saying, we're talking about good and evil and nations and hail, the, 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 the fire of God from heaven from chapter 1. And then God's last argument is, I've got control over the animals. I, don't, I just don't think that really raises to the... Uh, the plot arc of the book, for one, it would be kind of a wah-wah in, the, in the, the theological argument path that Job's been taking, and it makes sense in ancient Near East culture, and it makes the book really just, oof, next level. Hmm. I don't know, but I, had, I was not familiar with that growing up. and But once I realized that that's, 
that's God's words at the end of Job. I was like, that's a problem. They're, they're, why is that there? Why is that the language God uses? Um, it's a really compelling argument, and I'm, I'm 99% there. So you tell me you're not going to preach on dinosaurs. <laughs> well, maybe at some point between now and Thanksgiving, but uh, <laughs> probably not in the way you wished. You know, maybe we can do All right. dinosaur chicken nuggets after Look, church. One season day. four, we're doing a podcast episode on dinosaurs. I already put dinosaurs in the episode options. Okay, good. because so, we're doing it. I we're put gonna, that on there. We're gonna definitively <laughs> be the resource. <laughs> I've already told you I can't even find an Amazon book on dinosaurs. I don't even know which one to choose. Um, I'm going to have to get like a kid's book version, I think, with pictures and stuff. So, I mean, I've seen Jurassic Park, so uh, I don't know what that means. <laughs> um, all right. So a couple questions here, just – uh, and you can be as brief or, or as you want on this. I, as you, just, I'm think I'm trying to think about people that are just reading Job and just yeah. really want to be kind of benefited in their reading of it. Um, you have these friends that speak, mm-hmm. and sometimes they say things that if you just grabbed a few mm-hmm. verses here or there. Mm-hmm. And rip them kicking and screaming out of their context. Yeah, they would sound like really good verses yeah. you might put on your wall or something like that. Yeah. Yep. Right, they build yep. God up really to oh, say man. like He's amazing. Some of, and, the- some of their theology, if you took their theology, you could put it in a statement of faith. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 Exactly. So but I would say hands down, do not trust Job's friends. Okay, so that's my question is like applying when even when they have right theology, they will misapply it. That's okay. the whole point of the book. Yeah. So so as I'm reading through, I've got to be I've got to keep my eyes open for who's speaking. Yeah. Right. Yep. And and is there a difference in from friend to friend? Like, you know, yeah, they get uh, worse. But I mean I mean is like one friend, oh, this is typically what you get from him and oh, this is typically what you get from this guy too and that kind of thing or yeah, Are they equal yeah. opportunity offenders? Yeah, I mean, sort of. They they kind of have chips on their shoulders, um, but I I wouldn't. That's not going to significantly help you. I mean, I maybe could do that, and you could go through and say this friend tends to emphasize this, um, but it's not. They're not trying to to put these guys into a character form so much as we're you know the point is what they have to say as an example of a philosophical argument, you know? Um, so, and then there's this, at the very end, there's this other friend that comes out of nowhere, Elihu. Mm-hmm. What do we, what, what about him? How I, do we even I, read my, him? My perspective would be that he's not helpful. He's one of the last accusers. He comes in and he accuses the other friends and, and faults them as if to say, and he's younger, by the way, as if to say he's even higher. Okay, well, they had their problems, but they're all wrong. So now it's, okay, well, we've got someone that agrees. These guys are wrong. You know, they kind of missed it, but is he going to get it right? It's it's tough. People will actually disagree about this. Some people will say he maybe is a good friend. He's a friend of Job. 
But I, I think Job is really the one righteous man in this passage who continues to defend his innocence to the end. And there are those friends who are accusers who do not. Um, I would read it. I, w- I would not. I would encourage people to read it that simply. And that will help you realize that when you get. I've heard. I remember hearing someone a year or two ago quote something from one of Job's friends. And I was like, but you know, that's actually right theology misapplied. And it's wonderfully practical and helpful because I think we're going to find we, we have heard ourselves and other people make similar good sound theological arguments about God and misapply them in someone's suffering or right. marriage or childhood or something like that. And it's so practical, those yeah. those questions and how they, how they get applied. One of my favorite chapters um, toward the uh, the later part of the arguments is when the, the friends argue that Job should be really afraid because here's what here's what God does. God God will, you know, some, someone will be sitting in their tent at night and the light will go out. Someone will be walking on the road and they'll trip over a root. Yeah. Someone will That's be walking down the road and a lion will come out. And so, Job, you never know when God's going to get you back for that thing that you will refuse to confess. You think you've had it now, Job. You, you ought to live a haunted life. And Job's answer is ultimately the resurrection in the next chapter. But it's like, man, do, do we not think like this and live like this and counsel people like this? You ought to be a—you better watch out. God's going God's gonna to get—I mean, so it's just so practical if you slow down and read it. But no, I don't think the friends are kind of, you know, representing a camp. If they are, uh, someone could show me. I haven't seen it yet. Yeah. Um, so if you were to kind of put a button on this book as a whole, what would you say is the main point of the, of the entire book? Is there one? Is that, is that even a fair question to ask? Yeah. God is sovereign over chaos and evil. And I think the point is not. And it's an important point that we don't know what God is doing locally and temporally. Why did God do this? God blesses Job in a, multipli- in a way of multiplication at the end. Why, why did God allow this? I don't think that's the point. Well, God, God did this because he wanted to test Job and prove Job. Possibly. God does that. He left the nations in Israel to test Israel. He, he tests our faith, First Peter 1. But I think the point is theological. That you know God is free and does what he wills in his wisdom and his plan and no one gets in his way. So that you can, you can actually sit back and rest and go, why is this happening? I don't know temporally what, why God would do this thing to this person. I don't know. <laughs> but I know why God does all things mm-hmm. for his glory. I know God is sovereign over all things. I know the world is not chaos. The world isn't driven and owned and ruled by chaos. There's a sovereign God out there who has a mind and a purpose and an intention. And is evil winning? It is, you know, is Job's loss? Does that mean that evil has the last word? No, God has the last word over evil. So 
much of what the genre of wisdom literature is is understanding. I need to understand the world a different way so that then I can actually re- relate to my friends and family a different way. Hmm. Right? I don't put the pressure in, on them to be God and know everything. And I don't dare pretend to know what God is always doing in someone's life or why or assume. In anyone else's life, much less even my own. What's God doing I, in my own life? Why is he allowing or withholding? Uh, to pretend that you always know is the mistake of presumption that Job's friends make. Hmm. And isn't it great that we are given, I mean, the whole point, the whole joy for us is we're not like Job's friends. We get chapters one through three. Hmm. We, we, yeah. we're, we're actually learning. <laughs> we're seeing behind the veil of our reality and what we can see. And we're, we're knowing beyond that, God's revealing himself through his word. for listening to the Fire and Bones podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider subscribing or following the show on your favorite listening platform so you can be notified every time a new episode is released. Consider leaving us a generous review if that's an option for you. And most importantly, share this podcast with someone that you think might benefit from it. Be sure to check the show notes for any relevant links, including our contact information. Feel free to reach out to us with any questions you might have. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Fire and Bones podcast. Thank you.